In case you didn't know, it's actually one of the coolest things that a pastor gets to do is to celebrate children and God's work in them and the hope that we have that God will do even greater things than we ever could imagine. So uh, today we do celebrate that. It is a privilege to be able to share with you, and uh, I'm continuing my series that I've been in over the last several uh, weeks as we look at the broken road to Calvary. Uh, There were so many things that Jesus encountered, and brokenness was certainly at the center of it. Uh, Last Sunday evening, I was talking with some of our college students about the transformation that has taken place within society, specifically regarding the church It was partially connected to the sermon series as we've been identifying the brokenness in our church and in our world. Outside the church, we see people who have no clue what a right relationship with God actually looks like and what it can do for us. Yet the reason those outside the church don't get it is because they have rarely seen such revelation displayed among those who are inside the church. What I've been describing over the past month is that we have become the church that Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. It is this last descriptor that is most concerning to me, having a form of godliness yet denying its power. On the outside... We live in a world that loves to be spiritual. I'm talking about those outside of the body of Christ. But that is not the same as being a Christian. Just because you're spiritual does not make you a Christian. On the inside, we live in a church that wants to be identified by the name of Christ, by the promises of God, by the eternal salvation that awaits us. Yet we have settled for powerless defeated lives. One of the conclusions that we reached this past Sunday night is that the church has become more content with making believers rather than making disciples. What I mean by that is that the church is so focused on bringing people to a point of decision rather than bringing people to a point of transformation. Don't get me wrong. I think that we should See that point of decision when an individual recognizes that they are a sinner, when they realize their need for forgiveness and they pray to God and receive that forgiveness, we ought to see that point of decision as an amazing thing. But it is not the end. It is the beginning. You know, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, we read about the need for both decision and transformation. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and will heal their land. The decision part of this is easy to catch. The people are choosing to humble themselves and pray. 
Humility comes in when we recognize I don't have what it takes. I need God to intervene. I am humble enough to recognize I am incomplete by myself. I need God to intervene. So we humble ourselves and pray, declaring that this is not about us. They are admitting that they need help from God, so they seek his face. But then we see the transformation that must also occur. And unfortunately, I have heard this verse quoted quite often, leaving out this portion. It says that they must turn from their wicked ways. This is the act of transformation. I was walking one way, and I am now going to turn and walk the opposite direction. I cannot stay on the same path that I have been on. To do so would result in the same results. Instead, they must turn and go in the other direction. In today's passage, we find Peter as a work in progress. Three years ago, he made a decision to leave his past behind and follow Jesus. Now, that meant leaving his family business. That meant sacrificing all of the comforts of home. That meant the occasional abuse by people like the Pharisees. But he was okay with all of that. He was willing to go because he was following Jesus. Peter had made a decision to follow Jesus, and he knew that the benefits far outweighed the potential negative consequences. The past three years have been a period of transformation in Peter's life. He's made a decision, and now he is being transformed. We don't know much about him before he met Christ. But there's no doubt that spending that much time with Jesus would result in a transformation of almost everything in Peter. But he was not yet a finished product. The passage Jonathan read earlier to you talked about his act of betrayal. The moment when he chose to deny Christ. Admittedly, this passage kind of makes me wonder if I'll ever be genuinely able to let my guard down, if I'll ever reach that point where I'm strong enough spiritually, if Peter, a man who had been walking and talking with Jesus for three years, was so vulnerable to sin, then surely other saints would need to be vigilant against temptation as well, never letting our guard down. The vulnerability of the saints is something that has been laid out for us in the scriptures and even in Peter's life. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Peter tells us why we must be careful. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter spoke as one who knew the attack because he had been there. You see, even after three years with Jesus, he was still human, which means he was still vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. Consider that with Peter, Jesus had tried to warn him repeatedly in the days leading up to this event in Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 16 records an encounter between Peter and Jesus, and Jesus had been telling his disciples about the things that were about to happen, the time that was coming when Jesus would be crucified. And Peter, in all of his great wisdom, 
begins to argue with Jesus. It's as if he somehow knew more than Jesus did. Jesus' response is this, and it, it's probably the greatest insult anyone could ever receive. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Who can forget what happens in Luke chapter 22? The crucifixion is nearing and Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but more specifically, he speaks to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. By the way, I believe that what Peter spoke there was absolutely true. On the night that Jesus would be arrested, it would be Peter who would draw the sword and would actually attack one of the soldiers, cutting off his ear. Peter was willing to die for Jesus. The issue is he probably wasn't really all that willing to live for Jesus as well. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. We know that according to our passage here in Matthew 26, Jesus' words would prove to be true. Peter was apparently quite vulnerable, willing again to die for Christ, but in that moment he was not willing to live. He just couldn't see it himself. It would seem that in his arrogance, he figured he was good enough already. But this is a very dangerous place to stand. Remember the believers versus disciples thing? If you ever become content with being a believer as opposed to becoming a disciple, you are on very, very dangerous ground. My desire is not to be able to say we had 500 people say a magic prayer at church on Sunday. If we do, I will be happy because we had 500 people in church on Sunday. But know that the greatest desire is not to have people who can claim to be a Christian, but have people who are living and being transformed by the power of Christ in their lives. We must ever be alert. Consider the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? And this is a very ugly last statement. It says, unless, of course, you fail the test. I wonder if there aren't others like Peter. We've assumed that everything is good because we call ourselves Christians or because we've said some magic prayer or because we attend church on a regular basis or because we tithe or because we have a position and leadership in the church and we assume that everything is okay. But the truth is that we need to keep pressing on to become greater disciples. We need to be alert Constantly examining ourselves to see if we truly are seeking him with all of our hearts. 
remember years ago seeing an illustration, a pastor stood up and he had a basket that he was using, and in this basket, he continually placed apples, but inside the basket, there was a hole, and every time he would put an apple in the basket, it would fall to the floor, and the basket, by the time he was done, was just as empty as it was when we started See, there are many who are in the church who we've taken on more things and we've tried to add to our lives and we've tried to make sure that everything looked good and everybody else looking on the outside would look and say, everything is great, but there's this great hole that continually allows basically all those good things to just be drained out and you're still as empty as you were to begin with. The truth is, God is not looking for just people who are believers but those who will be full of the Spirit of God, filling them and using them and working in them in such a mighty way that there's no way that we could somehow get credit for this great work that God is doing in us. The other lesson that we get from this is that there is great value in paying attention to the people around us sometimes. I know this was Jesus. So what he's saying we ought to listen to Of course, he's going to see where we're walking down an unhealthy path. I don't expect my spouse or my coworker to be that attentive to where I go wrong. After all, they're not in my shoes and they don't know what's really going on in my mind. But there is great value in surrounding yourself with godly counsel who will call you out on sin and love you enough to not sweep it under the carpet. In Peter's case, he had someone who loved him. And wasn't content with just leaving it the way it was. Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you out. But I have prayed for you. Proverbs 19.20 says, Heed counsel, act on instruction, and you will become wise later in life. Lay your pride aside and willingly accept the attentive loving, and godly correction of those who are in your life. It will not entirely keep you from being vulnerable, but it will equip you for victory in spite of the vulnerability. I've often wondered with Peter how different things might have been had he been receptive to the correction which Jesus offered to him. He simply couldn't see it. Oh, no, there's no way. Even if everybody else turns away, I'll be faithful. I'd be willing to follow you even to the point of death. He didn't want anything to do with what Jesus actually was calling out in his life. How many heartaches, how many regrets could we avoid by simply heeding the counsel of those whom God has placed in our lives? We see the vulnerability of the saints. We also ought to see the powerful conviction of sin that is present. In Peter's case, sin clearly takes place. Our passage reveals that just as Jesus had predicted, Peter would deny Christ three times that very night. Apparently, for the purpose of self-preservation, Peter would deny even knowing this Jesus to the point that, first of all, he's denying it to a servant girl, actually on multiple occasions. And then the last time, he even makes an oath, basically saying, I should be punished, I should even be killed. He, he is absolutely denying whether he knows Jesus. 
You know, each of the four Gospels records this event, but there's one particular detail that is included in the Luke version that really kind of keeps things in perspective. In Luke twenty-two sixty-one, it says that upon denying Christ for the third time, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. The Lord looked, he turned and looked straight at Peter. All of the gospels say that at that moment, Peter went away and he wept bitterly. Have you ever done something that you knew caused an offense towards someone else? I know that I have. Sometimes it's been because of unrealistic expectations that have been placed upon me. And sometimes it's been because of foolish decisions that I have personally made. Either way, it's not much fun. Immediately, there's this feeling of guilt and shame and regret. You wish you could take it back. You wish you could start the day over. And make different decisions, never to be in this position again, hopefully getting a different result. But life doesn't usually work out that way. What happens when your offense is against God? We know what God expects of us, and we genuinely want to do what is right. Yet we realize that we haven't measured up very well. Maybe it was a, a little white lie that you told or Maybe it's something that as soon as it came out of your mouth, you felt this guilt. Maybe it was a sexual relationship that was outside the confines of marriage. And as soon as you started, you thought, what was I thinking? Maybe it was an addictive behavior that you thought you had gotten a handle on it. But you suddenly found yourself knee deep back into it all over again. Or maybe... The pastor was speaking, and suddenly there was something that came to your mind, and you knew that's something that I've been doing, and it dishonors God. And now the guilt simply rushes in on you. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up to speak. He presents a very, very hard message, but it was a personal message. Remember that Peter was the one who had denied Christ three times in our passage here in Matthew 26. Who is he to call out anybody else for their sin? Who is Peter to be able to say, you did this? He was speaking as one who knew conviction, but he also knew that conviction was not the end. He knew that God could use conviction to bring about genuine change so he could understand the question that the audience asked him in Acts 2.37. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They feel this conviction. They are cut to the heart. And they want to know what they can do to fix that which has been broken. How can I relieve this feeling of guilt and shame that I carry around? How can I make up for the things that I have done wrong? The reality is that many will feel guilt and shame. 
Yet this conviction will not always lead to change. Consider the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 9. We see that one of the plagues involves hail, which will destroy the crops of Egypt. As the hail persists, it doesn't just come and it's gone, but it continually persists. Pharaoh calls on Moses and he says, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses responds by removing the hail, but he knows that Pharaoh has truly not had a change of heart, even though he claimed he did. He says, I know that you and your officials do not fear the Lord God. And then in verse 34, we read, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Unfortunately, there will be many who feel that weight of conviction and guilt and shame, yet they will not truly be changed. Remember years ago, I had a family member who was in a serious accident. The prognosis was not good. Unless a miracle would take place, she would die. She still would end up in a coma for four months, for four weeks. The immediate family began to pray. And in that moment, they made a covenant with God. If God would heal her, they would start going back to church. Well, God did choose to heal her. In fact, if you were to meet her today, you would never know that she had even been on death's door. They did go back to church for one Sunday. I guess the point is that conviction that leads only to a one-time promise or a one-time change is not really what God desires. The purpose of conviction is to lead people to a transformation of the heart. When you recognize that sin is present in your life, that there is brokenness within you, it is not so that you just feel bad about yourself, but it is so that you will recognize how much you genuinely need God in your life. The forgiveness that he alone can grant, the only way for us to be made right with him is through him. But if all we do is say some prayer and then leave it by the wayside... Moving forward, it has not accomplished the purpose it had. In Acts 2, as the people cry out to Peter and the other disciples, they are seeking to do more than just make them feel better. They don't ever want to be back in this situation again. They don't want to live defeated lives knowing that what they did caused Jesus to have to die, always feeling guilty for the sins which they have committed and even continue to commit. They want to be set free, and they no longer want to be held accountable for the sins that they have already committed. Romans 2.5 reveals that what happens when an individual chooses to respond with lasting action on conviction, it says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a day of judgment that comes and all of us will have to pay for the sin which we've committed if we do not respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Your stubbornness and unwillingness to change will lead to God's wrath and punishment. How do we respond to conviction? This verse in Romans 2.5 reveals that God is not just interested in a few behavioral changes. God genuinely wants to see our hearts changed. The Bible talks a lot about the heart. It would seem that we have a type of heart disease, but it's not the kind that comes from eating too much red meat. It is the kind that comes from the presence of sin in our lives, accompanied by a tendency to ignore the Holy Spirit's conviction. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10. It says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Grief and conviction can be a great thing if it leads to a heart that is repentant, leading to salvation without regret. I think most of you are likely familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. David was a godly king who had seen incredible blessing from God. Like Peter who walked with Jesus for three years, David had known God for most of his life and he should have been godly in all that he said and did. But he let his guard down. The result was an adulterous relationship followed by deceit and even murder. Eventually, God would send a prophet to David, calling him out for his sin, and the result was a genuinely transformed heart. Psalm 51 reveals the prayer which David records in that moment, and perhaps this ought to be the prayer for each of us who have experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He said, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He adds later in verses 16 and 17, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. In other words, if I could bring something that would be enough to make up for what I've done, I would. If I had more money and that would be enough, I'd give it to you. If I could give you all the the animal sacrifices, I would give it to you. But that's not what you desire. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. David's heart is genuinely crushed, realizing that his sin was great. He's not just saying this to avoid God's wrath. He is realizing that the greatest punishment he could ever receive is to be separated from God's presence, and he doesn't want that to happen. I remember years ago, I had a young lady who came to me seeking advice on a relationship. The fact that she wanted to talk to a pastor about a relationship with a guy that she already uh, knew, the fact that she wanted to talk to me as a pastor about this relationship reveals that she already knew something was wrong 
about that relationship. He was her boyfriend, but he was not a Christian. She wanted to know if it was okay for her to date a non-believer. Again, she's coming to the pastor. She already knows there's an issue in play. So I asked why she came to me. Her response was beautiful. She said, I want to date him, but I don't want to do anything that might compromise the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. Did you hear David's prayer a minute ago? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You know, I never answered that young lady's question that day. I told her I believed that the Holy Spirit's presence in her life would enable her to make the right decision. And she did. She chose to break up with the young man. But I loved that lady's heart. I don't want to do anything that might compromise the Holy Spirit's presence in me. May that be the prayer of each of us today. In closing, I want to go back to one of the verses that we started with this morning in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I believe that the time is now for us to turn from our wicked ways. Where we have allowed sin to exist, we must choose to walk away. We must genuinely seek His face, seeking to have our hearts and our behaviors changed. I don't know the sins that may exist in each individual's life here today, but I believe that the same Holy Spirit that spoke to David's heart and even spoke to that young lady's heart that I just mentioned, that that same Holy Spirit is still convicting people of sin. Maybe your sin isn't as great as somebody else's sin. Maybe there's someone else in here and you're looking around and thinking, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. I doubt that the Holy Spirit has pointed out that guy to you. It is more likely that he has pointed out sin that exists in your own life. It's not so you feel guilty and you're ashamed and you're embarrassed because of what other people might know, but it is so that you will recognize your need for him. Will you respond to the offer of forgiveness? Will you choose to not just seek his face and to humbly pray, but to genuinely be willing to turn from your wicked ways and to pursue him, not pursuing the things that have brought you shame and regret? but the things that will bring you fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God offers that forgiveness to you today. I quoted a verse to you last week from 1 John 1, 9 that says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe today that there may be sins that we need to confess. I believe today that there are sins that we need to repent and turn away from and find grace and forgiveness in Him. I'm asking if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we recognize that our only hope is in you. Lord, I would venture to say that every person in this room 
has felt conviction to a point that at some point we had to kneel at an altar and respond to your grace and forgiveness. But in this room, there are likely others who have continued to allow that sin to remain. We have sought your face. We've asked your forgiveness. But we have yet to turn away from that sin. Lord, I pray today that the conviction of your Holy Spirit would cause us to do more than just talk about it or think about it or proclaim salvation. Help us to live as those who have been redeemed. Lord, I do pray for your forgiveness. Where we have fallen short, you are our only hope. Thank you that we can trust in your forgiveness. But I pray today that you would set us free. I pray that you would deliver us from the temptation, deliver us from the enslavement to sin, and allow us as we walk out of this place to truly be new creations, a reflection of a God who redeemed us and didn't just fix that which was broken, but chose to make us new. Lord, I pray that you would transform us from the inside out. With every head bow and eye closed this morning, I just... I'd like to personally be able to pray for you throughout the week. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But maybe today you would say, Pastor, that's me you've been talking about. I've been dealing with conviction. I've been sweeping under the carpet. Or I've been dealing with conviction, but I continue to do the same things. And I know I shouldn't be. And I still feel this weight of guilt and shame. Pastor, would you just pray for me? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, once again, we come before you and we simply ask that you would set us free. No longer allow us to be identified by the past, by our sin, by our regret, our shame, our guilt. Let us be identified by the freedom and the life that you have given. Transform us today. In your name we pray. Amen. It is a privilege to have each of you with us. Now, next Sunday, I'm going on memory here, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is one of the greatest times of celebration in the church, at least it ought to be. It's when we celebrate the triumphal entry of Christ. And my prayer is that God will show up here in such a mighty way, just as he did in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. I invite you to come back and be a part of the service with us next week. Thank you, and go in peace.